My name is Deborah Carmen, and I'm an alcoholic. And I love this program because it saved my life. I want to welcome all the newcomers that are here, first of all. I know that everybody in this room probably shares a similar story to mine. When I landed at the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, my life was spiraling downward faster than I could lower my standards. <laughs> and I had just enough game left to um, hit my knees and walk through these doors. But first, I want to thank Christina for asking me to speak tonight. We've been friends a long time. Love to be here. And Roya, thank you for showing up to be the leader tonight of the meeting. Um, I want to especially thank my posse of beloved friends and sober sisters that show up, my trudging buddies, my road ponies. You know, I have a theory, the wildest ponies make the best horses. So I'm here with a whole posse. And, um, and all those that came out to support me tonight, I really appreciate it. But I came tonight especially for the newcomers. I know this is a treatment center. I, my story doesn't involve a treatment center. My, my story involves something rock bottom much harder. But um, I want to tell you who I am. I want to tell you what it was like, where I came from, what happened. And I want to share the miracle of the program of recovery that I have experienced with you tonight. I want to especially congratulate the chip takers and the birthday takers. Congratulations. The longest walk of my life was from the back of a room to take a 30-day chip. And it was also the single greatest accomplishment of my life. And that's hard to believe. I've had a big and an abundant life, and um, that to me is still the greatest single accomplishment that I've had. So um, I was born in Akron, Ohio. and. Uh, that's where the AA story began. I happened to have been born in St. Thomas Hospital, which was the very hospital where Sister Ignatia administered to the hopeless, indigent, low-bottom alcoholics in the basement. That's where that she, she came to meet uh, Dr. Bob and Bill W. And uh, when I was two months old, I was taken by my great-grandparents, who were in their late 80s, their parents were in the Civil War, and they took me to raise me. And when I was two months old, they bought a basket from Sears and Roebuck, and they brought me to California on a train. And um, we settled in Pomona, California, and we had a small chicken farm. So um, that was how my life began. My great-grandfather was a Christian Missionary Alliance Pentecostal preacher. He was a God-fearing man. And the God of his understanding was a, a hellfire and brimstone punishing God. And, uh, and my grandfather talked about miracles all the time. My grandfather talked about sin all the time. I didn't have any clue as to what sin was, but there were a lot of people apparently sinning. But, uh, but a Christian Missionary Alliance uh, preacher that he was is... Um, what we call a Pentecostal preacher. So they were into writhing in the aisles and testimonials and witnessing and speaking in tongues. And uh, it was horrifying to a young kid. I, it was horrifying to me. I just didn't relate. And, um, and he was a really God-fearing man. Talked about miracles all the time. And um, he talked about the Bible having 333 miracles, and of which he 
claimed that Jesus himself had performed 35 of those miracles. And, you know, we never saw any miracles growing up. I never saw any miracles. We had 75 chickens in a very, very small, modest, modest house. And um, my mother wasn't with us because my mother was on husband number six. And her mother, who was only 15 years older than she, was on husband number five. And hence, I had the good fortune of being given to my great-grandparents to raise. So I was homeschooled. I have no formal education. I, um, I have no formal training in anything. I've never been to college. I barely made it out of high school. And again, I was homeschooled until I was 13 and went home to live with my mother. But my grandfather talked about miracles all the time. And um, I would say, Pop, you know, we never see a miracle. How come we never get a miracle around here? And Pop said to me, well, sweetheart, what kind of a miracle are you looking for? And I said, Pop, we need a TV. <laughs> we need an electric washing machine. You know, we needed simple conveniences and simple pleasures, and we didn't have any of that. And, um, and so I want to share something interesting, and I'm going to just fast forward to something that's important to me. For those of you that are reading the big book, or those of you that have read the big book, or those of you that want to read some interesting things in the big book, the one thing I want to share with you tonight is that in the foreword to the second edition of the big book, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was written in 1939. And 15 years later, in 1955, the second edition to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous came out. And the foreword to the second edition begins with this line. <clears throat> Since the writing of this book in 1939, a wholesale miracle has taken place. Wholesale miracle. So my grandfather had talked about miracles, but I looked up that word miracle. And that word miracle means a sudden, wondrous, unexpected event inexplicable by natural or scientific law, something usually delivered by a divine agent. But the word wholesale means that I've got a commodity that has a value that I can sell to you, but it's got sufficient enough value that you can turn around and sell it to somebody else. So I'm here selling tonight, and I'm selling the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. So when I was 14, I went home to live with my mother. And my mother was on another new husband. Um, I was socially um, awkward. Um, I hadn't been in any formal, structured school environment. So academically, I was challenged. But emotionally, I was absolutely paralyzed. Uh, opening day of school. I wasn't even there one hour, and I wet my pants in front of the class. And, um, and it was a terrifying experience. You know, and I now look back. I was just a leaky vessel. There was nothing that stuck. I was just this hollow individual um, that had grown up without any peers around me, any, any kids to play with. We lived in a very, very rural farming community in a very, very remote area of Pomona before it was even developed. <clears throat> All around us were walnut groves and avocado groves. So I went home to live with my mother, and, um, and I tried my best to get along. My mother, through a series of husbands, you get all the, um, 
you run the gamut of the molesters and the abusers and the batterers and the, um, the punishers, and I experienced a lot of that, and that has nothing to do with my alcoholism. That rural upbringing, that lack of education has nothing to do with my alcoholism. Um, when I was 16 years old, there was a neighbor kid. Her name was Marilyn Fox, and she was very pretty, and she invited me to a party, and I'd never been to a party. I was 16 years old, and I'd never been to a party. And um, I was very, very excited about going to that party. And at that party, I drank a six-pack of beer, a pint of slow gin, I smoked a pack of cigarettes, and I got a nail and a potato, and I pierced both ears. Oh, wow. And by dawn's early light, God knows what other orifices had been punctured or otherwise penetrated, but that tow-haired, cherubic, angelic-faced <coughs> Christian girl overnight that transformation happened, that God that I never believed in, that my grandfather pontificated all those years of my youth that I didn't want, I found that God in a bottle. And that young, naive kid suddenly turned into a bodice-ripping, thong-snapping, tabletop-stripping, pole-dancing, vodka-guzzling, drunk-driving, car-wrecking, <laughs> husband-stealing, credit card-scamming, tax-evading, cheating, lying, thieving, skank-ass whore. <laughs> that was... But I felt the power that alcohol gave me. I fit in. I became personable. I became relatable. I was funny. I was cute. I had ambition. I was intelligent, and for some reason, that alcohol worked its magic on me. Just like my grandfather with that writhing in the aisles and those testimonials pontificating about how, you know, God was going to come and fix everything, and I found it. That night, I found it, and what I felt, it made me feel a part of, and what I did not see that night and for those many two decades to follow, it just separated me. It divided me from you. It completely separated me from any God of my understanding. And, um, and it turned me into a woman with a demagnetized moral compass. It turned me into a, um, a very capable prevaricator. And if you don't know what that means, I was just an incredible liar. I could convince you of just about anything. I could convince you that I had a degree in library science and that I could work for your company, professional library service, that I graduated from UCLA. I didn't even know what the Dewey Decimal System was. <laughs> but I was a convincing, ambitious girl. And a couple of things happened. I, I worked in a muffler shop when I was 16 years old. I ran bead weld for guys that built drag racers, and I was exposed to a lot of heavy drinking and a lot of drugging, and I didn't participate in any of that. All I wanted to do was save my money, get my party on by myself with my friends, 
And I saved up enough money to buy an Austin Healy. And by the time I was 17, I was Sherman's March to the Sea. I wanted to come to the beach, and I wanted to, I wanted to make a life for myself. And I didn't need you to help me. And um, again, everything was fueled and propelled by my alcoholism. So a couple of things happened by the time I'm 19 years old. I now have two jobs, and they're good jobs. And uh, I'm 19 years old, young, attractive, ambitious, and I'm in the Tijuana jail. <laughs> and I'm in a week in the Tijuana jail, and I don't know how it is now, but I can tell you it was pretty rough then. And, uh, and you know, alcohol got me there. I did not see that alcohol, again, was it was the cause of what started to erode in my life. I was lucky to get out of that situation. It was a very, very treacherous, dark situation. I got out and I crossed that border and I thought, boy, I am never going to Mexico again. And I didn't for probably 30 years. But, um, you know, always someone else's fault, always a set of circumstances. So the next thing that happened when I was 19 years old, I tell you this because I want you to know my truth. I want you to know the effects of my disease, as painful and dark and ugly as it is. I found myself pregnant, and I had what would now be a capital crime, a late-term abortion. I found a stranger through a series of connections in Los Angeles who picked me up and took me to a hotel in Beverly Hills where I was introduced by a doctor. Abortion was illegal at that time, and uh, four men held me down, no anesthesia, no anesthetic. There was none of that because they were on the hit and run. Four men held me down. This doctor did a procedure, and I almost bled to death that night. The consequence of that was that I was never to have children again, period. Um, and I didn't relate my alcoholism to that, but I can tell you that when I found out I was pregnant, I knew I was not capable of raising a child, and I knew I was way too selfish to even think of some other life other than my own. I just wasn't put together enough. And, um, and my best thinking and my best drinking said abortion was the only solution, and that was the path I chose. And that um, it's a deep regret today, but what I can tell you today is I have experienced a family and children beyond my wildest dreams in Alcoholics Anonymous, and some of them are here. Um, I got a series of really good jobs. I don't want to dwell on the alcoholism, but alcoholism changed the dynamic of my life. There were wrecked cars. There were failed businesses. There were broken marriages. You know, I just ran through life with reckless abandon. I did it my way, and if you didn't like it that way, then you could take the highway. <clears throat> so um, later on, I, I was to... Um, through a series of interesting circumstances. I had a lot of good fortune. I was a really hard worker, and I was a really hard worker for one specific reason. I was always desperate. I was desperate because I had no fallback plan. I had no family. I had no one picking up the, the checks or underwriting the rest of my living. I had to work, and I had to work hard. And, uh, and by the time I was 26 years old, I, um, 
I owned a house on the bayfront in China Cove in Corona del Mar. And, uh, and I bought my first flower shop in Corona del Mar. And I went on to parlay that business into four flower shops and an event planning business. And the more successful I became, the more out of control, the more reckless, the more deviant, the mo more despicable, the more incomprehensibly demoralizing things started to happen. Um, when I tried to buy that first flower shop, the way I met my, my husband was I had paid for the flower shop and the man I was buying it from died mid-purchase. And, uh, and I had to find a lawyer to unravel the mess of the estate. And it happened I found a lawyer that I ultimately was to marry. And he was a really decent man. He was a, um, he was a First Amendment constitutional law civil rights cause-fighting lawyer. He was a really, really decent man. And um, he was in the CIA for 20 years. He ran for Congress. He's just a really wonderful human being. And he was married to this alcoholic, self-willed mess of a woman. And um, I don't know why he stayed with me. He got sick. Um, after we'd been married about 11 or 12 years, he got sick with really serious open heart problems and congestive heart failure, which ultimately he was to die from. And, um, and you know, I couldn't stop drinking. I had this glorious business, and I, I did everything I could to disrupt or erode that business until finally my alcoholism started closing in on me. Circumstances, wrecked cars, drunk driving, going to jail, things that were just completely out of control. IRS chasing me, IRS putting keepers on my shop to get the money before I got the money. And, um, and I couldn't stop drinking. So I'm going to fast forward to February 2nd, 1992. I was facing a lot of consequences. I was going to go to jail. And uh, my best thinking was to get a criminal defense lawyer to plead my case to surrender my driving privilege for life and to give me whatever jail time that they deemed necessary or whatever the conscripts of the, the sentencing laws demanded for my crime, I'd rather go to jail, but do not sentence me to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not like those people. <coughs> the judge's name was Pamela Isles, and I'll never forget standing 12 feet in front of her, and she said to me, Deborah Carmen." How low do you want to go? And uh, it would be still six long weeks before I would walk into Alcoholics Anonymous and you would say to me, how free do you want to be? But I didn't hear it that day. And they gave me an option. They said I'd come back for the sentencing to really think about what I was doing. And I went right back to drinking. Game on, worse than ever. Now the problems have piled up. They're incomprehensible. So I had an Irish drinking hostage who I was romantically linked with, although I was that girl that your mother warned you about, and I was that girl who was cheating on the boyfriend that I was cheating on the husband with. And um, on February 2nd, 1992, I had been on a three-week just horrible alcoholic bender. <clears throat> Drugs are not part of my story. I did have some weight problems, 
And so I, uh, I treated those with copious amounts of pharmaceutical propellants for a number of years, <laughs> which only after I came to my senses did I realize that taking a thousand benzedrine a week is a pretty serious mind-altering um, speed problem. I think today they'd call it speed, a speed freak. But um, <clears throat> February 2nd, 1992, I had run out of game. I had Tom Sheehan held hostage in his house. And, and at, by 10 o'clock in the morning, I drank a quart of rum, all but that last golden swallow. And I said to Tom, I had been hysterical for days, and I said, you know, I don't know what I'm, I got to leave my husband, I want to get out of this business, I got financial problems, the IRS, and I'm going to jail, and I don't know what to do, and, and I'd been hysterical. I was one of those drama queens that just shut up. But he didn't say that. I said, Tom, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he looked at me, and with that Irish lilt, he said, Deborah, you got to quit drinking. That's the first time I'd ever heard that. It's the first time anybody ever said that to me. I don't know why, or maybe it was the first time I heard it. But at that moment, I looked at him and I said, you don't ever have to worry. I'll never be back here. I'll never darken your door. You calling me an alcoholic? You're from Limerick, Ireland. You drank more on the boat coming over here while you're in your mother's womb than I, and crazy. I was that crazy girl, but I stormed out of there. It was February 2nd. I live at the beach. I have this blessing of living in, at the beach and this golden amber light that morning, that glorious still winter's morning streaming all around me. I had walked home from Tom's house. I walked in my house. I could feel my heart pounding, my throat closing, my eyes welled up. And I was absolutely desperate, and I was mad. And for whatever reason, for whatever reason, I walked to a sacred place in my tiny little house. I had no God in my life. I'd long separated from that idea of a God. But I dropped to my knees at that mo moment. I can still feel that light. I can feel my heart pound at this moment. I can feel my eyes burn. And on my knees, in supplication, I said, that alcoholic anthem, help me. Help me. I was so desperate. I had no God. I had no faith. I was consumed by fear. And at that moment, that cataclysmic second, all that despair, all that demoralization, all that wreckage, all that horror, all that incomprehensible alcoholic degradation, all that self-inflicted alcoholic torture, that self-imposed alcoholic isolation, all of a sudden, at that cataclysmic second, something collided with possibility and hope. And I look back now, and I know that was the first miracle of my recovery, a sudden, wondrous, unexpected event, inexplicable. I had no God I was counting on. But that was my first miracle of 
of my recovery. Now, I'm an alcoholic that drank 24-7. I had alcoholic insomnia. I had alcoholic DTs. I couldn't not take a drink. It was 4 o'clock in the afternoon on that golden, glorious February 2nd. And I watched that clock till 8 o'clock at night. And I'll never forget looking at that clock and disbelief. I hadn't had a drink in four hours. And I watched that clock till midnight. And I hadn't had a drink. I hadn't taken any mind-altering substance. I can only believe that was the second miracle of my recovery, that I had not taken a drink. And I stayed awake all night long, and for whatever reason, that third miracle was about to happen. For whatever reason, I picked up the phone and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got some jolly, cracking guy on the phone who told me where to go. And I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'll tell you what happened. I had just enough game left in me to hoist that white flag of surrender, surrender to win. I left my attitude outside the door of Alcoholics Anonymous. I came in, I took a seat, and right there, I thought of my great-grandfather, I thought of those miracles. But in the shares I heard, in the fellowship that I was to surround myself with, for whatever reason, I sensed the miracle of this great program of recovery. And it was through you, it was through all the stories, through the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I still had no God. And it took me a long time to find that God and to get comfortable with it. And the God I have is different from your God. But you taught me what my disease looked like. That I suffer, if I ingest any mind-altering substance, I suffer in the doctor's opinion, from severe pathological mental deterioration. That is what happened to me. That is what alcohol did to me. And in Bill's story, he said, how dark it is before the dawn. And you only have to read a couple pages longer. And Bill said, I stood in the sunlight at last. All that was required for me to make a beginning was willingness willingness to find a God of my own understanding. I began to sense the miracles of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you. And um, I didn't want to rush into the program. I wanted to come to the meetings, but I waited a year and four months to get a sponsor, and I don't recommend that. And she told me, Deborah Carmen, you're like a gazelle on the perimeter of the Kalahari, and you're going to get picked off. So jump right in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're new tonight, we pull people into our circle. We don't exclude anybody. We get, I, I go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I watch for the, the newcomers to raise their hand so that I can go over to them and welcome them into our circle, bring them into our fellowship, give them the same hope that was afforded to me. I have had so many gifts I got a sponsor. I worked those steps. And I will tell you what my daily ritual, my sacred routine is. Because if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, it took me a while to get my groove on. But I've been here now 
27 years and four months today. It's the greatest gift I've ever experienced. But here's what I do. It's described, it is, this is my recipe book. This is my recipe book, my design for living. Um, in Sylvia B's Keys of the Kingdom, it says this. AA is not a program of recovery that can be finished and done with. It is a design for living, and the challenges contained in its principles are enough to keep any human being striving for as long as they live. So upon awakening, on awakening, page 86 tells me to make that spiritual connection. I open my eyes. Wow. I have been graced. I drop to my knees the same way I did that day I received that miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous in that sacred spot, in that sacred house. And I ask God to direct my thinking and my actions. Remove me from the bondage of self. I have my own version of the third step prayer, but it's outlined in this book. I ask for direction that I can be useful to someone else. The next thing I do, I read the 12 principles of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because I know that if I want to be the best version of myself, I can't do it on my own. I need to be reminded what valor, what courage, what willingness, what perseverance, what faith, what hope, what honesty looks like. I need to remind myself, I read those principles, and I try and apply them into my life. On page 87 in the book, the second part of the recipe says, as we go throughout the day, we pause when agitated or fearful or full of doubt. I pause, not just once a day, it says throughout the day. Throughout the day, I have challenges. I have people, I have situations, I have circumstances. I have things that disrupt or interfere with my reaction and my ability to process life like normal people. So I have to pause and renew that spiritual, that divine connection and ask for help, guide my actions and my thinking. And at night, when I get in my bed, if I have done those 12 principles with a reasonable amount of integrity, and vigilance. I don't have a long 10th step. I don't have to review my day and say, who do I owe an amends to? You know, who do I have to make an apology to? It comes naturally. And I review my day and count my blessings. And when I do, I count you in. This is the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're sitting in a room on a Saturday night in a treatment center and you're new to this program, I beg you to stay. I have never witnessed one example of anyone that went out and came back and told me how great it was. It doesn't get any better than this, but it does. And I am the embodiment of the evidence that this is beyond my wildest dreams. If I told you what my life is like, you wouldn't believe it. I was that distended liver two broom handles holding up a barrel, bloated-faced, glazed-over eye girl that walked in and had enough courage to take a seat, identify, and be willing. I pray 
you will stay. My name's Deborah Carmen, and I'm an alcoholic.